0: you to do things like this very often, but close your eyes, close them really tight, everyone. I'm not going to ask you to lift up your hand, by the way, either. Now what can you see? Can you see anything? This is what it's like to be blind. No sight. No vision. You couldn't see your spouse or your children, your family. You couldn't see creation or color. You couldn't see to read, to watch. When you're blind, you can't see where you're going. You can't see what's coming at you. You can't see what's in front of you. You can't see who is in front of you. There are some people, many people, maybe even most people who are like this spiritually. Blind. You still have your eyes closed? In a spiritual sense, that's what it's like to be lost in the dark. Not able to see any spiritual thing. God, Christ, the gospel, salvation. Now open your eyes. This chapter and the story in it are about the cure for blindness. That might not sound so good to people who can see. But when you've been blind. And we were that for just a moment. When you've been blind. The cure for blindness sounds wonderfully good. Let's read this chapter. This story. Follow along with me as I do so. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, questioned Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva... And spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said, He's the one. No, others were saying, but he just looks like him. This is humorous to me. All the while they're debating his identity, he's to the side going, it's me. It's me. I'm the one. Therefore they ask him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. When I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. And he told them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son. And that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciples, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. And throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him, in fact. He is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. This morning I'm going to teach you some lessons from this story. I'm going to use this text to make some biblical points. Biblical from this passage, but... Points that the Bible would make elsewhere as well. And then after I do that, I'm going to give you the cure for blindness. First lesson. First point from the story. Very important. All suffering is not the direct result of the sin of those who are suffering. Does that make sense how I'm putting it? All Suffering is not the direct result of the sin of those who were doing the suffering. Do you remember the disciples' question from verse 2? Upon seeing this blind beggar, they asked Jesus, Who's at fault here? Is he blind because of his sin? Or is he blind because of his parents' sin? Their thinking was that his blindness, his suffering physically in that way, was directly related to someone's sin, either his parents' sin or his own. And then Jesus answered them in verse 3 and said, Neither. It's not the fault of his sin, It's not the fault of his parents' sin. It's not related directly to either his sin or his parents' sin. Now you do know that Jesus wasn't saying there that this man and his parents were sinless. What he was saying is that while they were sinners, his blindness was not punishment directly for either of their sins. This point, this lesson that all suffering is not the direct result of the sin of those who are suffering is the major point and lesson in the book of Job, or at least one of the major points or lessons in the book of Job. Do you remember Job's story? I'm guessing that the vast majority of you do, if not all of you. Job, this man who was afflicted with Suffering that's almost unimaginable. Suffering upon suffering. Suffering after suffering. And Job's friends were there to comfort him. And their comfort came in the form of the theology of the apostles of Jesus here. We know why you're suffering. Because of some secret sin in your life. And it must be really bad. Because your suffering is really bad. And throughout most of the book, that's the the interchange that goes on between Job and his supposed friends. And a, a major point is that Job's suffering... Had nothing to do directly with his own sin. Again, not that he was sinless, but that his suffering was a punishment for some sin in his life. The notion that whenever there is suffering, it is always directly related to the sin of the sufferer is popular theology. It was popular then. You see it in the apostles of Jesus. The Pharisees would have believed that way. The Jews would have believed that way. It's been popular down through history. It's popular theology today. The only problem with it is it isn't biblical theology. The problem with it is it's wrong theology, it's bad theology. It's not a Christian teaching. It much more resembles karma than it does the Word of God. Or what the Word of God teaches about suffering. All suffering is the direct result of sin. Not the sin of every sufferer. But all suffering is the direct result of the sin of Adam. You get that? There is suffering in the world. There is evil. There is sickness. There is death. There is calamity. All going back to the first sin. The first sin of humanity. It it ushered in all of this suffering. All of this evil and all of this brokenness. Suffering is sometimes the direct result of the sin of those suffering. There are two opposite ends of the spectrum here. I've already mentioned one. You've got some people that believe that every time you have suffering in your life, it's because of some sin in your life. That's on one end of the spectrum, and it's wrong. And by the way... All of us can think that way sometimes. Tell me that you've never thought in your mind when observing someone who is suffering, I wonder what they've done to deserve that. On the other end of the spectrum is this popular notion that suffering is never directly related to the sin of the sufferer. And that's just as wrong theology as the other side is. It's just as poor or bad of theology as the other error is. It is true biblically that there are times where God directly punishes people or disciplines people for sin in their life. There are numerous, numerous examples in the Bible. Just look at the nation of Israel. How many times did God punish slash discipline them because of some sin that they had been involved in, idolatry or immorality or the like. What about the example of Miriam, the sister of Moses? Do you remember the story where Moses had married a woman that wasn't to her liking? And she bucked the authority of Moses and she ridiculed him and this new wife that he had taken on, and God struck her with leprosy. Directly related to her sin of rebelling against the authority figure that God had placed in her life and the life of the nation of Israel. What about the son that was born as the result of the affair of David and Bathsheba? He died shortly after birth. And it was directly related to... Their sin. But not all suffering is punishment. You with me? Not all suffering is punishment. Did you know that some suffering is as far from punishment as anything could possibly be? It is a gift from God. Philippians chapter 1 says, it has been given to those of us who are Christians not only to believe, but also to suffer with Jesus. Suffering is a gift. In many cases, it is a good thing. Look no further than the suffering of Jesus one of the things that we need in the, the current climate of the church, at least the church in our part of the world, is a revival of the theology of suffering. We've lost that. And we probably lost it because of our American take on Christianity on the Bible. We probably lost it because of the influence of the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. We probably lost it because of the word of faith movement, which isn't faith at all. Suffering can be God's plan, God's will, God's good plan. For our lives. Something that He intends to work for good in our lives. And the the ultimate good towards which God is working in every believer's life is to conform him or her to the image of Jesus. And suffering is a part of that. We're humbled through suffering, aren't we? Suffering purifies us. Suffering refines us. Suffering teaches us like nothing else can and nothing else does. We learn to obey like Christ through suffering. Our faith is strengthened by suffering. All suffering is for the glory of God. All suffering reveals the glory of God or will reveal the glory of God. It will reveal His attribute or attributes that otherwise we would not or could not see. This man's blindness was for God to be glorified. It set the stage for Jesus to heal him. Have you thought about that? If this man had never been blind, then we wouldn't be talking about Jesus healing him this morning. It set the stage for God to work. Our suffering, sufferer, listen to me. Your suffering sets the stage for God to work, for God to be glorified in some way. And He may be glorified through the elimination of whatever is causing you to suffer. He may be glorified by your preservation through the suffering. He may be glorified by your demonstration to others through the suffering. In some way though, God is being glorified or will be glorified through our suffering. The first fact or lesson here is that all suffering is not the direct result of the sin of those suffering. Second lesson or point. We have a limited time to do the work of God. Well, that was the point of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. He had a limited time on earth. He knew that His death... And departure were approaching. So he felt a sense of urgency to do all that God wanted him to do. To do all of the works that God wanted him to do. To help and to heal all of the people that God wanted him to help and heal. Like Jesus, we have a a limited time before we die. Or before Jesus returns... We have a limited time, a limited amount of of daytime, if you will, to use the, the imagery here. We have a limited amount of time before the night comes. You ever watch that show on the Discovery Channel, The Last Frontier? About those homesteaders in Alaska? And I mean, for several months a year, they're working literally all day long. Because they know there's coming a time in the year where there will be no daylight or very little daylight or if there is daylight the weather's so bad that they can't do any work. And so they have to squeeze a year's work of work into just those few daylight weather permitting months. Sort of the same thing going on here. We've got a limited amount of time. Night is coming. Winter is approaching. And none of us know when that night will come. None of us know when we're going to die. None of us know when Jesus is going to come back. So we must work while it's day. We're in the day. And I want you to think this way. It may blow your mind, but even when it's nighttime, it's daytime spiritually. We must work. For Jesus, this work was to be the light of the world. And that goes back to chapter seven, verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine, where we talked about Jesus being the light of the world. He was the light of the world. While he was here on earth, he had to shine. Now though we are the light of the world. Matthew five. Jesus said, You are the light. Of the world. That means He shines through us, that the world sees Him through us. Listen, what it means is that the world sees through us. We have what will enable them to see. And again, time is very, very short. What are some of the things that the Bible compares our lifespan to? Grass. Smoke, vapor, dew, not mountain dew, morning dew. Mountain dew runs out by the way too. It's why the psalmist prayed, Lord, teach us to number our days. Second lesson point here, we have a limited time to do the work of God. Third, our responsibility is to trust and obey. That's not new, is it? I mean, you've heard me say that before. We sing about that. Not this morning, but we sing about it sometimes. Our responsibility is to trust and obey. We learn this here from Jesus' method for healing this blind man. This, This wasn't an ordinary healing of Jesus. He spits in the dirt. He makes mud pies out of the dirt and his spit. And he takes the mud pies that had been made out of the dirt and the spit. Thankfully, the guy was blind, otherwise, he might have protested. And he applies them to the eyes of this blind man. And then he tells him, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam and wash and the man trusted Jesus and he obeyed Jesus he didn't question Jesus he didn't debate with Jesus he didn't doubt Jesus he didn't offer Jesus a, a, an easier solution he trusted and he obeyed and as the result here's one of the best parts of the story it simply adds. I mean, it's very simple. No big deal about it. He went, he washed, he came back seeing. No big deal. Guy had never been able to see, but he comes back seeing. Can you imagine what that walk must have been like for this guy? I mean, eyes wide open. He's seeing the light for the first time in his life. He's seeing birds. He's seeing people. He's seeing geographical features for the first time. Sometimes God asks us to do hard things. Commands us to do things that if they aren't hard, they're hard for us to understand. Right? Tells us to do hard things or things that are, that are hard to understand. Here, here for example. Many scholars suggest that based on where they were, There were other pools that were closer than the one at Siloam. But he tells them to go there. How about the story of the ten lepers in Luke 17? They come to Jesus to be healed. Jesus doesn't do anything right then. He said, just go show yourself to the priest. But they trust and obey, and they go to the priest, and on the way, they're healed. How about the story from 2 Kings about Naaman, who came to be healed of leprosy. Jesus told him to go wash in the the river there. And he's like, are you kidding me? We've got much better rivers than this where I'm from. You want me to wash in this river? But he ends up going, trusting and obeying, and he's healed. You see, God is always working. But many times God works through our faith and obedience. What I'm saying is that He won't work if we don't trust and obey in certain cases. His work in these cases is is conditional based on whether we trust and obey. Our responsibility then is to trust and obey right fourth lesson the healing of jesus makes a noticeable difference the healing of jesus makes a noticeable difference when the man came back he was unrecognizable to many of his own neighbors he was so different This isn't strangers. These are either the people that he lived next to or the people that passed him by every day. And many of them cannot recognize him. It's like he's a different person. Others were unsure. You know, sort of 50-50. Maybe it's him, maybe it's not. There was a great debate over his identity. The lesson for us here is that if Jesus works on us, if Jesus works in a person, that person will be different. Will be changed. In a way that others can see. In a way that others will notice. And if there is no noticeable difference or change in a person who professes that Jesus has worked on them it's probably an indication that that person hasn't been healed by Jesus if the person never demonstrates any difference never changes at all then it's a certainty that Jesus has never touched them 2 Corinthians 5:17 If any man's in Christ, what is He? Come on now, not rhetorical. What is He? He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Everything's become new. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with wine or with alcohol, which leads to, to sin. But be filled with the Spirit. The implication there is that... In contrast to how alcohol makes people different to the bad or to sin, the Holy Spirit makes a similar sort of change in a person's life just to the good. It's like an extreme makeover happens. You ever watched one of those? And I'm almost convinced that they ugly the people up before they put them through the makeover on TV because the after the makeover, it's so different. It's like nobody would know it's the same person. It, it may be an indication that there's beauty residing in every one of us. Even the ugliest of us, like me. I just need to go... I'm wondering what they would do with my hair, though, since they wouldn't have much to work with. Maybe they give me some new hair. My point is that When Jesus heals someone, they've been made over. And it's always extreme. Fourth lesson here is the healing of Jesus makes a noticeable difference. Fifth lesson. Those who have been healed by Jesus have an obligation to explain the difference in their lives. Those who have been healed by Jesus have an obligation to explain the difference in their lives. Look at verses 10 and 11. Therefore they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And his answer was, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed... I received my sight. This guy was different. Everyone noticed the difference. He then had an obligation to explain the difference. An opportunity to explain the difference. And so he explained that Jesus had made the difference. And for those of us who are different as the result of the the healing of Jesus, we have an obligation and an opportunity to explain that Jesus has made the difference. Do you know what gives us the opportunity to explain the difference? Being different. Did you hear that? What gives us an opportunity to explain the difference is being different in such a way that others notice it. This difference, this change that Jesus makes, gives us the platform, the foundation, from which to speak about Jesus. The reason that people want to hear from those who are different is because they're different. And the last thing in the world that our neighbors and our acquaintances and the people in surrounding areas to us, the people we come in contact with, the last thing they want to hear is you talk about Jesus when you're just like they are. Christianity and the church would be way better off if a whole lot of people who profess Christ as Lord would shut up. Be a secret Christian. And it would be a whole lot better off If people who are out there spouting off what they believe about Jesus and the Bible would be quiet. Because it doesn't matter if they're right. Their lives give them no platform from which to speak. And to the people that they're speaking to, here's all those people are hearing. Walk, 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 walk. Walk, 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 walk. Walk, 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 walk. Translated, I'm a big fat hypocrite. I'm a big fat hypocrite. I'm a big fat hypocrite. Now that may be strong, but it's true. It's true. This guy didn't have to go knocking down doors to tell folks of Jesus. They came knocking at his door. We have an obligation, if we've been healed and touched by Jesus, to tell what we know. Verse 25. He said, look, I don't know about everything, but I know this. Just a little while ago, I was blind. And I'd been blind my whole life. But now I can see. He knew more than he thought, didn't he? We have an obligation to tell what Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done in us. And if our obligation is to share what we know, then it stresses the importance of knowing, doesn't it? If we're going to speak, then we better know. It also stresses the importance of learning, of always learning. We don't have to know it all to speak for Christ, but it ought to motivate us to be learning so that we can speak more of Christ, better about Him. We want to be growing in what we know. We want to be learning so that ultimately we can move past simply telling people what Jesus has done in our life to telling people about Jesus. That's where we really want to get to, is being able to clearly share the gospel with people. And and a word of of information here. This is not a a chastisement at all, but it's a truth. Sharing your testimony is not the same as sharing the gospel. It's good. It's necessary. But it's not enough. See, your testimony is the story of you. Maybe what Christ has done for you, in you, but it's still the story of you. The gospel isn't about us at all. The gospel's all about Jesus. It's his story. That's where we want to get to. Is from our testimony being able to tell people here's who Jesus is, here's what Jesus has done, and here's what Jesus offers to all who will turn from their sin and trust on him. I want to fast forward. Aren't you glad you know where I am in the chapter? I told you that after we talked about these lessons, and we've got some more, we'll we'll get to them next week, that I wanted to get to the cure for blindness. There are two parts to it here. And I want to I just close with one because we've already seen it. We'll continue to, but we've already seen enough to, to bring this up. Jesus is the cure for blindness. Jesus is the cure for all our ills. Jesus is the cure for whatever ails you. Jesus is the cure for all the world's ills. And the good news is that Jesus loves to cure It'd be one thing to have the power to do it, but it's another thing to have the desire to do it. Some of us have ability to do many things, but we don't have the desire to do them, so we don't do them. Jesus has the power to cure and the desire to cure. He loves to cure, He lives to cure, He came to cure. He said He came for the sick. He said He came to seek and to save. To be cured of blindness, spiritual blindness right now, physical blindness, maybe now, but probably in the time to come. What you need, what you must have is Jesus. He's the only one who can do it. The cure for blindness can be found in no one or nothing else. Is there anyone here this morning who is aware of the fact that you're blind? Spiritually blind. Anyone here this morning that will acknowledge that you're spiritually blind? That you just don't see like you know you should. Like others that you know do. Is there anyone here who will admit... Their need and their desire for a cure from Jesus. Are there ones here this morning who would testify that I used to be blind. But now I see because of Jesus. Is there anyone here who would praise Christ for His power in your life. For His grace and His mercy in your life. For His healing you. Of your spiritual blindness? Is there anyone here who would worship Christ for being the cure for blindness? Anyone here this morning who needs to respond to one of these lessons or maybe uh, more than one of these lessons that we've learned from this story? Speaking of the story, what a story! The cure. For blindness. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes? Our Father, we give you praise today that Jesus cures the blind. And I pray you do that today. and I pray that you would keep doing that. Thank you for having done that in in my life and on behalf of others who have the same testimony, I thank you. Help us to respond with faith, with repentance, with obedience to what we've heard today. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.